Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Our speaker this evening attained his Master's of Divinity and Master of Arts degree in Moral Theology from Mount St. Mary Seminary in 1989. Ordained to the priesthood in that same year, Monsignor Pope has served at several parishes in the Archdiocese of Washington and was named Monsignor in 2005 by Pope Benedict XVI. He has served as pastor at Holy Comforter St. Cyprian Parish in Washington, D.C. since 2007. He also blogs regularly for the Archdiocese of Washington. Please join me in welcoming back Monsignor Pope. Well, good. Bless you all. Um, let's, well, let's begin with prayer, and we'll, we'll, we'll look at tonight's topic. Lord, we're um, in Advent, and I don't know, many, many years ago, many generations ago, maybe, maybe well, may, maybe just about 100 years ago, really, Advent lost its way a little bit, and it became more of just a, a joyous season to prepare for Christmas. It lost its penitential quality, and... We stopped really focusing on our meditation on our need for a savior. Um, but this old hymn that we're going to study today goes back to that older period when Lent was much more penitential and um, when we were more uh, likely to, fa to fast and pray uh, extra prayers and things during Advent. So help us to look back into this period. Help us to take up the longings of the great patriarchs and prophets and for a Messiah, for a Savior, and help us to know that uh, the, um, the power of doing that makes Christmas even more joyful for us. And we make this prayer in our Savior's name, Jesus, who is Lord forever and ever. Amen. So, you know, there's an old saying, if, if, if you don't know the bad news, the good news is no news. And that's a very serious problem in the church today. I'm afraid that we've gone on for so long trying to just, you know, I don't know, somewhere along the line, I remember back in the 50s, and uh, I, don't, I don't remember the 50s, but the priests who were coming through in the 50s said it was all fun, you know, fire and brimstone and kind of stuff. And so we sort of overreacted, I think, in the 70s, and it was all, God loves you. And, um, you know, I think I told you every sermon I ever heard growing up, I could have summarized in three sentences, you know. Jesus is challenging us to do better today. Let us try to do better. Now stand for the creed, you know. It was kind of, it was really kind of vague stuff. And, um, you know, it was all kind of, uh, and, and again, there's a place for, we want to have encouragement in, in the preaching and the teaching of the church. But, you know, when you, when you lose sense of the fact that we desperately need sacraments, we desperately need the Word of God in prayer. If we, if we're ever going to just stand a chance, you know, uh, when we start, when we start hearing, stop hearing the bad news, that we're very strongly inclined to sin, and we really get it wrong, terribly, individually and collectively, without lots of grace and mercy. If we stop preaching that bad news, the good news, news is just no news. It's ho hum, you know, you know. And uh, so, what I want to do with you is is reach back with this hymn. 
And look at the, it, it, it speaks to us really of the deep need and longings for having a savior. And it's a beautiful hymn that helps us to do that. Now, as you, if you have your notes, just go ahead, let's look at our first page. And I want you to know this, this, this text, before it's, a, before it's a, a hymn, it was a text. Rorate ceri de super, et nubes pluant justum. Hmm? And you see, you know, we have there a, a basic translation of that, right? Again, uh, you know, it simply says to us, let, the, let, let the, uh, the heavens send forth dew and the clouds pour forth justice. Or, I mean, the, the clouds rain forth justice, right? Now, uh, we're going to see that there's some adaptions to this text, but that's the fundamental text. There's this beautiful image of God, if you will, coming down from heaven like gentle dew. And... Uh, and uh, coming in and giving moisture to the ground, and then justice springs up from the earth. So there are several different versions of the text in antiquity. The first one is the hymn that we're going to look at, um, and it's used frequently both at Mass and the Divine Office, and it expresses a beautiful poetic expression of the longings of the patriarchs and prophets, and symbolically of the Church for the coming of the Messiah. Uh, and we'll look at, uh, we're going to have to look at the Babylon Babylonian captivity of the Church during Jewish times to understand the kind of the context in which these texts come to us. Now, a second version of the chant, which we won't look at in detail, is, is a, that it's a daily verse and a response in Advent at Vespers in the, old, in the old office. So in the new office, it doesn't occur quite as often, but in the old office, it was invariably there for evening prayer for Vespers. And it has, a, it has an addition to it. So it begins the same. Rorate ceri de super. And nubes pluant justum, all right? And again, drop down dew, you heavens from above, and let the clouds rain forth the just. And then a response is made. Periatur, terra, germinant, salvatorum, let the earth be opened and send forth a savior. Uh, here's a more poetic rendering. Mystic dew from heaven, unto earth is given. Break, O earth, a savior yield, fairest flower of the field. Hmm? And it's an echo, isn't it, of Isaiah 55. A lot of us know this text. Uh, it goes like this. It says, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Now, again, look at this beautiful vision. Think of this in your mind. That the heavens send forth rain, and that rain enters into the soil, and justice springs up from the earth. And who, who springs up from the earth? Jesus. He takes to himself human, human nature. We are all sprung from the earth, are we not? Yeah, I, I don't know. I came from my mother's womb. I know you did. But ultimately, we know that we're all sprung from this earth, aren't we? We're, uh, we're the dust and the ash of this world, and a little bit of water. And there we are, right? Okay. I mean, in terms of our physicality, right? Um, and uh, this, is a, this is an amazing thing. God sends forth his word. Now, that we understand here, not just some audible word. His word. His, the second person of the Trinity. And he enters, and, and justice now springs up from the earth. Literally, from this earth, justice springs up and walks among us. And he speaks a truth to us. Beautiful, magnificent image here, isn't it, right? Of how God's grace works, all right? So, rorate ceri de super. Let the heavens, let the heavens, uh, uh, you know, rain down uh, justice on this earth and so on. So we see 
That's the second version. Now, the third version of this text is as, as the introit for the fourth Sunday of Advent in both the New and the Old Rites. Um, and then at a few other times at what we call the Rorate Masses on Sunday. Now, by the way, on your flyer, um, you'll see that one there. It's a different melody than what we'll hear tonight. I think if I can do my Gregorian notations here, <clears throat> and I'm not so good at singing with my, with my lungs, but here we are. Or something like that, you know. So that's, uh, that's how it sounds to the, uh, as, as an intro it for the fourth Sunday of Lent, all right? And it has this version here, the, um, the, same, the same text that we see, right? Again, the translation is given to you earlier there. So you see these different versions in which it occurs, right? Okay, now, with that in mind though, turn the page, and let's begin to focus on the hymn. Um, you'll notice that the hymn, there's, a, there's an antiphon there at the top, okay? The Latin is on the left, and the English translation is on the right. So you have, Rorate celi de super nubis pluant justum. All right, now, notice again, drop down do ye heavens from above, and let the clouds rain down the just one. That's our, that's our antiphon. It's a plaintive cry. Why do I say that? Because look at the verses that follow, where you're saying, Lord, help us. We're in trouble. We've made a mess out of everything. Our land is in ruins. We, are, we have been destroyed by our sins. Utterly, we've lost everything, Lord, and we need you now. That's, this is a very plaintive cry uh, to the Lord. Look at the first verse. I'll just read the English, right? Because you all don't read Latin, right? So let's just go over the English. Be not angry, O Lord. No longer remember our iniquity. Behold, your holy city is now made a wilderness. Zion is deserted. Jerusalem is desolate. The house of your holiness and glory where our fathers praised you. It's in ruins. Imagine the temple smoking ruins. Imagine St. Peter's in utter destruction of smoking ruins. See the sim symbolism of that, right? We're gonna, I'm going to give you the background of this. It's about the Babylonian invasion and destruction of Jerusalem. And Isaiah actually didn't live to see it. He prophesied it. But he, he, he talked about a terrible destruction that was coming upon, upon Israel, or in this case Judah, for its sinfulness, this, this complete lack of repentance. And he warned and he warned and he warned and then he died. And people like Jeremiah took up the theme and the other prophets. And they warned and they warned and there was no repentance. And finally the destruction came. It came. Let's read on. We have sinned. We are like an unclean thing. We are, we are all fallen as a, as a leaf. And our iniquities are like the wind. We, and the winds have taken us away. Thou hast hid your face from us. You have consumed us because of our iniquities. Behold, O Lord, the affliction of your people. Send forth him whom you will send. Send forth the lamb, the ruler of the earth, from Petra, from the desert, to the mount, to the daughter of the daughter of Zion, so that he may take away the yoke of our captivity. And then God responds, comfort, comfort ye my people, for your salvation will suddenly come. Why are you consumed with sadness? Why has sorrow seized you? I will save you. Do not be afraid, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Redeemer. Now, we're going to listen to an audio clip of this in a minute, but you, I want you to understand the plaintive cry of this. You need to understand how awful, how awful this destruction. I'm going to go through the history with you in a moment. But just imagine, you know, I, I love this country. 
I'm like you, I, I think men's a, we've got a lot of mess here in our country right now. But ultimately, I love our country. But, you know, I tell you, I, tell you, I just came back from Greece about two, three weeks ago, and I walked through a lot of ruined cities that were every bit as glorious as Washington, D.C., places like Corinth, places like Ephesus, you know, places like, you know, uh, you know, places like Thessalonica, and they're in ruins today, ruins. There's other places I've been, you know. Again, we have here no lasting city, but the ruin and the destruction that these people went through was horrifying, horrifying. And then they were led off into captivity in Babylon, taken, taken off into exile. And they're out of this weeping and this crying for their sins. And they lost everything. Because, and they knew, they knew it was because of their sinfulness. They wept. They wept. And these texts from Isaiah, that are, all these texts, by the way, in the, in, the, in the verses are all drawn from Isaiah. Hmm? Okay, now, with that in mind, can we hear a sample? Why don't we do, listen to the... Antiphon and and then and then just the first verse and then we can kind of turn it off. By the way, do you kind of see, if you turn back to the first page, you'll see the, the, the musical notations. Um, there's a kind of an onomatopoeia going on here, musically speaking. Um, <clears throat> so it's like a cry going up, rorate, right? Calling, please, please, Lord, send forth. And But you hit the word cheli, right? Rorate cheli de I can't sing very well, but tonight but you 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 hear you almost hear the rain coming down right or the the dew coming down and then again the and then we go back up and so you start to see uh the rain descending so the cry goes up to heaven and the response of heaven comes down raining down raining down from uh, justice onto the earth and so there's a great great cry that goes up and it's a yearning it's a it's a it's a longing it's a and you're going to hear some uh, polyphonic version in a minute a few minutes on this too but i would ask you to just ponder again that this is a very plaintive cry now let's say well, why do you let's teach me more about that pastor okay well let's turn the page <clears throat> let's go back to the backstory the um the backstory, let's go back. The, the, the critical year is 587 B.C. 
But we need to go back earlier to 721 BC. Now remember, numbers go backwards in BC, right? So 721 is earlier than 587, all right. Now, way back in 721, the prophets in the north began to warn the northern kingdom of because of its wickedness, God would allow it to be destroyed um, if they did not repent. And um, over and over again, the prophets warned and the prophets warned, but Israel did not repent. And in 721 BC, the, the Assyrians invaded and destroyed what's called the northern kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel. We, the northern kingdom was destroyed um, by the Assyrians. Um, the, few, the survivors, uh, were, some of them were assimilated into the Assyria or taken captive. Others were, many, many were killed. And a few remain kind of the very poorest in the land who just kind of lived in the caves and the ruins of, of northern Israel. And you'd think now the, the southern kingdom is going to say, wow, I'm going to repent, man. Because actually the Assyrians came all the way down to the, to the, to the gates of Jerusalem. And um, there was a great, uh, a, a great um, a miracle. They, they got dysentery and they had to retreat. And uh, they, Jerusalem was spared. So you think there's going to be a great reform, right, in Israel now? I mean, in Judah now? Now, remember, 10 of, the law, 10 of the 12 tribes are gone, wiped out. No more. Now, you know, some people say, are they really lost tribes? You know, there, um, there are certainly um, people from those lost tribes to be found in the world today. But largely as a corporate group living together, they were wiped out. They never came back together. Most of them were assimilated into what we later would call the Samaritan people. Hmm? Now, um, for, yes, there was, there was a reform then in the South with Hezekiah and others, and, and, and for a brief while, for like 20 minutes, they reformed, you know? And you know, God had to say, oh, oh, my people, your piety is like the morning dew, you know? It's there 20 minutes, and the sun comes up, and it's gone, you know? And, uh, and so it is that, um, yes, there was a brief reform, like everyone ran to church for a couple of Sundays after it said 9-11, right? And where are they now, you see? And so, but again, all these are just ways of saying that we, we see that uh, warning after warning, and it was not heeded, and then finally, because of their weakness, they were not able to withstand the Assyrians, um, and they were completely destroyed by them. And the South was almost lost. Well, off and on again, we pick up the story now in your notes there, um, these plaintive verses that we've been studying come from the book of the prophet Isaiah, which was written in a terrible period of Israel's history. Isaiah lived between two tumultuous events. I've already talked about the destruction of the northern kingdom in 721 BC, but also the destruction of the southern kingdom of Judah in 587. Now, though Isaiah died long before these fateful events, the third part of his book prophesies it. All the stuff that we read about Jerusalem being destroyed, Zion been turned into a wilderness, all of that. That was written by Isaiah well over 100 years before it ever happened, right? And he, he died long before these events. Now, some, say, some people say, you know, here we go again, the scripture scholars. Somebody make the sign of the cross real quick, okay? All right, the scripture scholars. There's this theory that really he didn't, he didn't, it was actually Trito Isaiah was written by a later author who plugged it into the book and that it's, um, um, it wasn't a prophecy at all. It was just appended to the Isaiah book um, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, okay, right, whatever, okay. None of the church fathers ever talked that way, you know, but, you know, you get the idea. There are those, now, there are, I want to be fair to say that there are different textual differences between the third part of the book of the prophet Isaiah and some of the uh, earlier parts of the book and so on, but, you know, you get a different scribe, you get a different secretary, she's got different handwriting, right? 
Okay, well, at any rate, I see, I think that Isaiah is in fact prophesying, as he's certainly a proleptic, it's, it's, he's tweeting a future event as if it were present now, and he speaks these plaintive cries from the book of the prophet Isaiah, depict the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem, so let's see how that happened, next paragraph, the conquest of Judah, now remember, that's the southern kingdom, Judah, the northern kingdom's already been wiped out. The conquest of Judah the, the, and the siege of Jerusalem was a military campaign by, 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 by Nebuchadnezzar, um, Nebuchadnezzar, as you pronounce, right? Uh, a king of Babylon in 587 BC. Earlier, in 595, he had defeated many Egyptian forces and subsequently invaded Judah. Now, King Jehoiakim of Judah resisted the Babylonian rule, but to avoid the complete destruction of Jerusalem, he, cha he changed allegiances from Egypt to Babylon and paid tribute from the treasury in Jerusalem. In 591 BC, um, during the um, uh, fourth year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar suffered some military losses against the Egyptians, and this perceived weakness led to many numerous rebellions among the states of the Levant, which included, uh, included Judah. Uh, who owed allegiance to Babylon, including uh, Judah, like I said. King Jehoiakim stopped paying tributes to Nebuchadnezzar and took a pro-Egyptian position. Now, he was warned by Jeremiah, don't you get involved in all that stuff. Now, I don't have time to go through it all with you. I, I just want you to know, he was told, don't do that. Don't you form alliances. Stay out of this. Stay no, 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 no. Trust God. Trust God. Stop it. Don't. He wouldn't do it. Nebuchadnezzar then dealt severely with this rebellion. He laid siege to Jerusalem. King Jehoiakim died during the siege, possibly on the 10th of December, 588 B.C., and the city eventually fell on, on March 16, 587 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar pillaged the city and its temple, and of those not killed during the siege, we don't have numbers, but they were in the tens of thousands who were, murdered, who were killed during the war, right? Um, the... Um, um, it says here, um, uh, and the, the, the Jewish population remaining, at least 10,000 were deported to Babylon. None remained except the poorest people of the land, who eventually became blended in with the Samaritans. Also taken to Babylon were treasures and furnishings from the temple, including golden vessels dedicated to king by King Solomon. Okay, Jerusalem lay a burning ruin, okay, including the temple, wiped out, completely destroyed. That was their life. Their entire life centered around the temple. It was their clock. All the feasts, everything. You went up to Jerusalem at prescribed times. Your entire way, your vision, your understanding of God, everything wiped out by an earthly king. Is God for real? Why didn't he save his own temple? See, again, God had already told them through the prophets. Do you think I'm into buildings? You stand before the temple and you say, this is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. Look what I did to Shiloh. We're, nothing's left of Shiloh now. I don't care about buildings and shrines. I want you to be holy. It's not about my ego. It's about your holiness. God told him. He canceled out that thinking. But you know how it is. We think, well, God won't let his own temple be destroyed. Come on. I mean, we've got safety here. This is God's city. See? God's not into cities and buildings and things like that, right? He's into our holiness. Are you praying with me? Okay. See, he's trying to raise kids, not, to, not build barns. All right. Good. All right. <clears throat> Now, notice again, we have some scriptures here. For example, from, uh, from 2 Kings. Surely this happened to Judah at the Lord's command to remove them from his presence because of the sins of Manasseh and all that he had done for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. 
and the Lord was unwilling to forgive. So again, part of the blame is, is laid with this guy named Manasseh, who was an evil, wicked king, who encouraged the Israelites to worship Moloch, and they sacrificed their children, their children, infants, to Moloch. Now pay attention, in a land where we now have up to about 60 million of abortion, we don't call it Moloch, but we call it reproductive freedom. A different god, but really the same evil demon by, the, by just a different name, right? You cannot go on shedding innocent blood forever. God is very patient. He calls us to repentance. I don't think if we're for, if we're for the active pro-life movement in this, in this country, we'd be anywhere close to where we are today. But as it is, it can't go on forever. And God will requite this. So, you see, this is why these old, you know, read and study the prophets. See what happens to lands that once know God and then forsake him. Watch what happens to them. See, they don't last. Now, again, Jeremiah had warned. For the 30th year of Josiah, son of, uh, son of Amnon, king of Judah, until this very day, 23 years, the word of the Lord has come to me. And I have spoken to you again and again. Uh, uh, and the word of the Lord sent all of his servants and his prophets to you again and again, but you have not inclined your ear to hear. The prophets told you, turn now each of you from your evil ways and your evil deeds, and you can dwell on the land that the Lord has given you and your fathers forever and ever. Do not follow other gods to serve and worship them. Do not provoke me to anger with the works of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. But... To your own harm, you have not listened to me, declares the Lord. So you have provoked me to anger with the works of your hands. Therefore, this is what the Lord of hosts says. Because you have not obeyed my words, because, I, because of this, I, because I will summon all the families of the north, declares the Lord. And I will send my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, whom I will bring against this land and all of its residents. And so these verses, the verses of the hymn that we've been studying, are no less a cry than desperation. The Jews had staggered from their ruined land hundreds of miles to Babylon, where they're now forced to live apart uh, from the land and the temple and the culture that God had given them. Weeping and lamenting, they said, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and we wept when we remembered Zion. And there on the poplars, we hung up our harps for our captors requested a song our tormentors demanded songs of joy sing for us a song of zion but how could we sing a song of the lord in a foreign land if i ever forget you jerusalem may my right hand wither or seek to cease to function so i want you to see the terrible terrible situation that they were in um and um i'm going to read i want to read some more text with you in a moment but just, if you will, I see you're turning your pages, but flip back, if you would, to the verses of the hymn, just one more time. You see that first verse? Be not angry, O Lord, be not angry. See, see, they, 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 knew, they knew that the, the prophets now um, uh, had, had warned them, be not angry, Lord. But it says, now, behold, Lord, Jerusalem is in ruins. Zion is deserted. Jerusalem is desolate. The temple has been destroyed. See? And the second verse again, we've sinned. We know we've sinned. Lord, now relent. We repent. It took this to make us repent. It shouldn't have. You know, you warned us, Lord. You warned us over and over again, and still we wouldn't repent. So they're singing these songs, writing these things, if you will. Uh, again, Isaiah is prophesying it, but this is their experience in Babylon. They're crying out, crying out to God for, for relief now from their terrible sinfulness and what they've done. Their entire land has been taken from them. They're living in captivity in Babylon. Uh, they're struggling mightily 
to hand on the faith. They have no temple, no place to offer sacrifices, no place to praise God. All they have is just their memory of the word of God. And they can gather and say some certain prayers, but they're lost. And their children, how will we hand on the faith to our children? What can we ever do, Lord? Our whole land, our faith, everything we've ever known is gone, is taken from us. It's a smoldering ruins. And we're in a foreign land, 500 miles from home, lost. Nothing, nothing for us, Lord, but misery upon misery. And we see no end to this. So now turn the page. Because it's a long text from Isaiah, I want to, I, these, these uh, quotes that I had from Isaiah, I want to read them sort of in context. And because it's a fairly long passage, um, I want to, um, uh, maybe we can read them together. Now, the danger of you reading out loud is you're not thinking about what you're reading. So really think about what you're reading when you're reading it, all right? All right? Listen to the great sadness um, that, and that, that, that did, we've seen some of these excerpts already from these verses. But let's, let's just read it in context. So starting with Isaiah 63, we're going to pick up on the right side with me. Look down from heaven and regard us, O Lord, from your holy and glorious place. Hold not back. For you, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer you are, named from of old. Why do you make us wander, Lord, from your ways, and harden our hearts so that we do not fear you? Too long have we been like those you do not rule, and those whose name is not invoked. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, with the mountains quaking before you, when the brushwood is set ablaze, where fire makes the water boil. Would that you might meet us doing right, that we might be mindful of you in our ways. For indeed you are angry, we have sinned, we have acted wickedly, and we have all become like something unclean. All our deeds are duck polluted rags. We have all withered like leaves, and our crimes carry us away like the wind. There are none who call upon your name, none who rouse themselves to take hold of you. Laden your face from us, and you've delivered us up to our crimes. Yet, Lord, you are our Father. We are all the clay, you are the potter. We are the work of your hands. So very angry, Lord, do not remember our crimes forever. Look upon us, who are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and glorious house, in which our ancestors praised you, has been burnt with fire. All that was dear laid waste. And you hold back the Lord after all this. And you give his son, and let us Okay, so you see, this is, um, this is deep deep sorrow. And if you don't know the historical background, you might say this all sounds pious and nice. But this is spoken from the heart. These are people who 
probably lost two-thirds of their family in the war. And then the survivors are carried away to a foreign land while Jerusalem lay a burning ruins behind them. Everything they knew and loved was taken, gone. And they cried out. Basically, what are they saying? I need a savior. We need you, Lord, to send someone to save us. Save us, Lord, and restore us. See? And not just our land, but our hearts. You know, we, 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 we know what's right, but we don't do it. There's something deeply wrong with us, you know. And text is filled with all of that, too. There's just this cry of the heart that, that we can't forget that's, uh, that's rooted in a very severe punishment that came upon them. And God had warned them about it over and over again, still, still. And, you know, I, I would just, again, to bring it into our own times, I mean, how, how many more times do we need to read texts like these and not think that such things couldn't come upon our land? Such things come upon our world. And, and you know, I think Europe and, and, and uh, the, the, what we call the West is sort of divided in my mind between Europe and the Americas. But I, I think America's on a little bit of a different schedule. But right now we just see that basically Europe's just kind of being replaced little by little, right? They don't have any will to live anymore. They're not even replacing themselves. Their, their birth rates are so low. But here in this country, we're having a similar problem. If it wasn't for the immigrants, thanks, thanks be to God. We, and thanks be to God, most of them are Christian and Catholic. But, but even still, we, we cannot go on thinking that we can just say, hey, you know, it's okay to, uh, you know, just get divorced and remarried easily and to move around and abort our children and, you know, to do all the things that we're doing and think that we're not going to one day have a comeuppance from God. Because innocent blood cannot go unrequited forever, see? And so let's not realize that maybe one day our grand grandchildren may be in the in some the city's burning ruins and and there may be a terrible plaintive cry they have to issue and part of it isn't just because of what they've done but because of what we've done and what we failed to do that we're not serious enough about the kind of moral condition of our country and if you want to know how our country got into this condition you have no more than to look around a room like this where we who are supposed to be the light of the world through you know, Jesus shining through us and we are supposed to be his voice in the world, but we've been quiet and we've hit our light under a bushel basket. I don't mean that's true if everybody's the same in this room. You all are above average. Let's put it that way, okay? You're above average. But my gosh, I mean, 75 million Catholics in this country, and we're in this condition? Well, look at the condition in the church. Look at our leaders. Look how we've become silent, sheepish. We don't talk about moral issues, and we don't discipline sinners in the church. So this is the condition that we're in today. But it's a collective thing that we've all somehow been part of. I have my part, you have your part, you know, but we've been through a terrible period of the revolution in this country, the sexual revolution, the cultural revolution, all these things. But we Catholics should have been holding the line, but we just went right along with it. I don't mean every single one of us, but... And see, these things can't go on forever and a nation still be strong. We can't have the divorce rates we have. We can't have the level of fornication and adultery and, and the homosexual confusion. We can't have this bathroom confusion and think that we're going to be strong. It's just, it's just not going to be good for us if we don't stand up and have courage to speak. And that's one of the reasons I'm glad you're here tonight. Because otherwise, I promise you, a ruined land is in our future. It already feels like it's in ruins in certain ways, doesn't it, right? 
I mean, when you can't even have a decent conversation about just ordinary things that we would say, you know, that we all agreed on 20 minutes ago, like what, what was a marriage? What does that consist of? Or, you know, um, is our homosexual acts, you know, uh, good or bad or, you know, or, 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 or you know, is, is suicide at the end of life good or bad? We, we agreed on these things 20 minutes ago. This has happened on our watch. And we have to be bolder and speak, speak more strongly and pray for the bishops, especially. Help them, Lord, and pray for priests. Too many silent pulpits, but there's too many silent dinner tables. There's too many silent Catholic schools. Too much, okay? So I'm digressing, but I'm not. I'm trying to say this isn't just some old thing. Isn't this awful what happened to them, poor folks? Uh, but thank God now Jesus has come. We're all going to be fine, you know? And he has come, but the point is even more so, if they suffered like that without grace and mercy that we have, how much more so will we suffer if we reject it? And as the book of Hebrews says, you know, we, we make light of the blood of Christ. See, how much more so if we reject those graces will terrible things come upon us? So you see, and again, God is not out for punishment. God wants to save as many as he can. And sometimes he has, I got to do some real severe cutting. I got to just bring things to an end. Otherwise, I'm going to lose more souls. See, all right. Now. With that in mind, pleasant little talk. Um, now, I'm, I'm asking in this next sound clip, uh, but the, the text picks up with, I want you to hear this this, this. this is a polyphonic version. It's written by William Byrd. And I want you to know that there is, a, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And it comes to this, um, it starts out, Zion deserta, Zion is deserted. And then there comes this plaintive cry, Yerusalem, Yerusalem. And it's just, cry, it's just a kind of a crying for the next, you know, it's about a four-minute track. And just listen to the sorrow that Bird ties into it. And he had a very personal experience that helped him to get in touch with what this means. And I'll tell you after we listen to it. But listen to the plaintive cry, Yerusalem. Okay? Okay.
Yeah, so that's William Byrd. Um, uh, this, the, 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 the title of the song is Nei Yiraskari Stomene. It's that first block of text. And by the way, he had a very personal experience with this because he lived at a time when the church, the Catholic church in, in England was, was, uh, was being persecuted. Uh, women, women were being, uh, and, men, and men were being killed for the faith. Um, priests were being martyred. Um, he was able to hold on to his Catholic faith because uh, he was in the king's court or whatever, but uh, he, he wrote these songs in protest to what was going on, and he saw the Catholic Church, the monasteries in ruins. They'd all been taken over by, by uh, the king, and all the monasteries had been closed, and the Catholic Church is closed and converted into Anglican churches, and uh, the very few people who could still attend any Catholic worship at all was under, only under special dispensation, and um, he, he mourned that. And it was a very similar struggle that I want to say to you. Um, I, I find it shameful to think that only one bishop protested what Henry VIII did. John Fisher, only one bishop. Where were all the other clergy? See, now there were some. Some died, martyrs, continued to try to save the, the, Catholic, the Catholic and staying faithful. But um, you see, these things repeat. The situation that we're in today, it's been around before, and it goes all the way back into ancient Israel when, frankly, the most corrupt section of ancient Israel that was being lamented was, in fact, the temple court, the temple priest. Corrupt, corrupt, corrupt. And um, so we see that these, this corruption, you know, there's the old saying, the corruptio optime pessima, right? The corruption of the best is the worst. See, and when the, when the very leadership becomes corrupted, when the very church becomes corrupted, how can the culture even stand, you see? So, again, we see that the struggles we're having in the church today don't also bode well for our culture. And people can smirk and try to drive the Catholic Church into oblivion, but they're, they're going to do it to their own demise because we're the only thing left to hold the line. And it's just the faithful among us. Sadly, most of us collectively, I'm talking about statistically now, are not faithful. Only 30, 22% go to Mass now nationwide, even go to mass. So I said, I hope, I hope you all are above average now. It's kind of going to come up to us and the kids we raise and the grandkids we inspire to, to hold the line. Okay, so these are the things. Now, again, so um, what, what happened way back then, you know, by the way, it happened again for the Jewish people in 70 AD. Jesus was their great prophet and he came to them and he said, now look, I want you to go to all the nations and I want you to love them. I want now, I want all the Gentiles to find their way to God. Remember they tried to throw him out of the synagogue for saying that in his own synagogue in Nazareth for saying, you know, it's time to call the Gentiles. And they threw it. They wanted to, they wanted to, they tried to throw him off the cliff for that. He kept preaching and trying to draw people together. And he, as he came to Jerusalem for the last time. He looked over Jerusalem soon to be destroyed for his lack of faith. And he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you destroy the prophets and you, you kill those who are sent to you. If only you had known the day of your visitation. If only you had known. But you would not. And therefore your destruction is set. And the na and a nation will hem you in and they will surround you with an army. And you will see utter destruction. And he wept. Anyone been to Jerusalem? You going to the Domus Flevit Chapel, right? You've been there, right? In the shape of a teardrop. See? And he told them, he said, look, he said, uh, because you see, what was happening in Jesus' time was a lot of political turmoil, and there were a lot of zealot parties and things, you know, false messiahs. One of the reasons he didn't want to be called Messiah was because most often people thought of a messiah as some guy on a war horse who was coming to kick the Romans' butts. 
and get them out so that the kingdom of David could be restored in all of its glory. And Jesus says, no, no, that's not what I've come for. I've come to help you with your sins, to give you grace and mercy so you can love your enemy. I want you to love your enemy, not kill him. Now, um, I want you to uh, love your enemy. And he said, go therefore into all the nations and teach them everything I've commanded you and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we see how even in the church, how hard that was. Well, if these Gentiles got to come in, can't they at least live, live like Jews? And they had to have a council, remember? But that was Jesus' plan. But the Romans rejected it. And sure enough, with it, he said, 40 biblical years later, in 30 AD, he made the prophecy that Jerusalem would soon be destroyed. He said, there are some of you standing here who will not see death until you see these things take place. And sure enough, by 70 AD, 40 biblical years later, the Jerusalem was surrounded by an army, the Roman army. They set up a palisade, and they waited out their time. And eventually, they, they went over the walls, and they destroyed the temple again. It's never been rebuilt. Jerusalem was left to heaping ruins, and 1.2 million Jewish people lost their lives in that war. 1.2 million died in that war. And Jesus wept over it. So you see, God is not up there saying, I want to kill you because you're not following my rules. He weeps over our, in a, in our, our in, in refusal to listen and to obey him. And we really need a savior. And he came to us. <laughs> but even then, when he came, so many in, in, in Israel rejected him. Not all, of course. Thanks be to God. All right. So you see, he's going to take that remnant, I think, to build back. Now, with that in mind, let's continue the story, though both then and now, as we see that, therefore, you, I want you to see what a plaintive cry and what a really a plaintive season Advent is meant to be for us. And how I think we sort of lose it by sort of, you know, turning it into pre-Christmas. And, you know, we don't have the penitential quality anymore. It's almost as important as Lent because, um, well, it, it helps us to get in touch with our need for a Savior. Now, again, oh, heavens... Drop down dew and let the, let, the, let the skies pour forth justice. Oh, how we need it. We're lost. We're foolish. We do the stupidest things. And even when we think we're going to improve, we don't. And Lord, we're just a mess down here. We need help. Help, Lord. Help us. And the Lord said, I'm glad you finally noticed. You know, you know there's a, um, you heard my saying that uh, we began this. If you don't know the bad news, the, the, the good news is no news. So you see, Mrs. Fission, now here's the bad news. <laughs> you got it bad and that ain't good. Here comes the good news, though. But the good news is there's a doctor in the house, and his name is Jesus. And if you will give yourself to him, he will go to work in your life, and he will help you with the mess you have made and the mess you become. If you just let him go, go to work in your life, let him, he's knocking on the door right now. Open up that door and let him in and let him start to go to work. And if you fall, get back up again. But work with him. Stay with him. Make this journey with him. We have a Savior. They were longing for the Savior. Jesus said, I tell you, prophets, Long prophets long to look at what you're looking at. I'm the one they were crying for. Oh, heavens drop dew from above. Be not angry, O oh Lord. Send forth a Savior. Go to the uh, text for the hymn again the, on the second page. <clears throat> we, we see the first, all that bad news. We've sinned, Lord. We made a mess out of everything. Even our, even our good deeds are filthy rags. See? Look at the second, the, the, the third first, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, behold, where it says behold, okay? Behold, O Lord, the affliction of your people, and send forth him whom you will send. Send forth a lamb, the ruler of the earth, from Petra, 
of the desert to the mount of the daughter of Zion, that he may take away the yoke of our captivity. Send us, Lord, a lamb. Now, again, there are, you, you understand the idea of the lamb, right? The lamb, they couldn't offer lambs in sacrifice in Babylon. There was no temple. You say, well, why didn't they just set up a new temple? You don't get it, do you? <laughs> there's a holy land and there's a temple and God says where it is. And if you ain't there, you ain't there. And even now, the Jewish faith that Jesus knew is, is doesn't exist now. It doesn't exist. They have no temple, no place to offer sacrifice, no place. It's a synagogal kind of Jewish faith, but it's not, it's not the Jewish faith of old because they can't offer the sacrifices and until the lamb comes. See, they're still waiting, but we don't have to keep waiting. He's come. He's come. Now it says here, then here comes God's answer. So here comes God's answer. After all this and their, their repentance and so on, comfort now. Comfort ye, my people, for your salvation will suddenly come. Why are you consumed with sadness? Why has sorrow seized you? I will save you. Do not be afraid. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Redeemer. You know, brothers and sisters, I don't care how bad you've messed it up. You could, I've got, you could actually go to the back page now, right? It's, just, it's really those same two texts. But I don't care how bad it is. If you just, just call on him. He'll hear you. No one who calls on me, says the Lord, will I ever reject. Now, I, 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 I feel like I have to keep going over this ground again and again. But because we're living in times where the rejection of the doctrine of hell is so common today, even among well-known speakers and others, that um, I have to keep going back over the two concepts, the wrath of God and the concept of hell. So first of all, the wrath of God. We hear about, be not angry, O Lord, be not angry. And likewise, it says that Jesus comes to save us from the wrath of God, the wrath that is to come. The wrath of God does not mean God is mad. He's angry. I'm in a bad mood today. You know, we don't have a moody God. Are we clear on that? God is not moody. The wrath of God is not so much in God, it's in us. It's our experience of God when we're in a sinful state. See, when you're used to the darkness, the light seems harsh. When you're used to the, when you, when you, uh, when you, um, um, you know, you, uh, you, you hate the truth, the truth sounds hateful. So again, the wrath, that's, that's what's meant by the wrath of God. The wrath of God doesn't mean that God is in a bad mood. He's throwing lightning bolts and he's coming after people. The wrath of God means that God is who he is. And if we are not prepared to go into his sight, who is glorious light and a burning furnace of charity, if you are not up at the temperature of glory, you're going to waste away in the heat. You won't stand it. You cannot, you cannot withstand it. So the wrath of God means that the total incompatibility of God's holiness before our sin state. And so what God has to do is go to work in us through grace and mercy and prepare us by bringing us up to the temperature of glory. And he does that through his grace and his mercy, through the sufferings that we endure, through his teachings, and through all of these different ways God goes to work. He helps us now, of course, in the New Testament times with sacraments, with the word of God, with teaching, with holy fellowship. These are the ways that God wants to rescue us and save us and go to work in our life. So again, the wrath of God doesn't mean that God is mad. Now, hell doesn't also mean that God says, to hell with you. But hell is God's recognition that we don't really want what he's offering. You see, the perfect gift is not just what I want. The perfect gift is what God is actually offering me. Now, heaven 
is not just a place of my personal design, a personal paradise that I design. Heaven is the kingdom of God in all of its fullness. It's a place of righteousness, of truth. It's a place where uh, we, of forgiveness, of love of one's enemy. The kingdom of God is about chastity. The kingdom of God is about generosity and goodness and kindness. Now, a lot of those things on that list, there's a lot of people that live their life saying, I don't want a thing to do with that. I don't want to forgive my enemy. I want to kill my enemy. I don't want to kill my enemy. I don't, it'll be sweet revenge, too. I, I, I don't want to forgive. You know what he did to me? I will never forgive. People need to know how hurt I am. Or again, chastity, please. Now again, God's not going to force anybody. And so the answer on the day of judgment isn't whether God likes you or not. The question is whether you want what he's offering. Do you love your enemy? Because you might look in heaven and say, oh my gosh, my enemy's in there. <laughs> and if you don't love your enemy, you're not gonna, it's not going to be heaven for you. Remember, that's the second son, the, son, uh, the prodigal son story, right? That's the whole point of that, right? He sees his rotten brother in there, and the father's pleading, come into the feast. And the son says, not as long as that guy's in there. And the story ends. Does he go in? Does he change his mind? I don't know. You have to, you have to answer it. You're the one who has to decide. Do you want what God is offering or not? And so these are the things in, in, in Advent. I don't, I don't know about you, but I need a Savior. Because you know what? I haven't always desired the things that God is offering. He has to go to work in my life. I need a savior to change my heart, to, get, to bring me up to the temperature of glory, to get me ready for heaven so that I'm desiring what he's actually offering. Because heaven is not just my designer paradise. It's the actual kingdom of God where God himself in all of his glory burns brightly. And I have to be used to the light and I have to be used to the temperature or I'm going to find it a blazing inferno. The saddest thing about the souls in hell is that they would be more miserable in heaven. That is very sad. Oh, heavens, heavens, drop dew from above. Let the clouds rain forth justice, and the earth shall be open and bring forth the Savior. You see, we need a Savior. Individually, personally, collectively, as a culture, as a nation, we need salvation. And you got to get in touch with that bad news. And we just brush over it today. We don't want to get people upset. We don't want to point out sin. We don't want to talk about unpleasant stuff. And we miss it. And because we miss that, we miss the good news. Here it is once again. Comfort. Oh, comfort my people. Your salvation will suddenly come. Why are you consumed with sadness? He goes on to say, basically, look, I'm the God who made you. I'm the God who loves you. And I want to save you. All I need is your yes. You come to me. But I tell you, if you run from me, great sadness comes for you and for others. But if you will turn, you take one step, I'll, I'll, I'll take two steps and start running to you. Just like the prodigal son story, right? So, getting ready for a Savior means on Christmas Day, say, thank you, Lord, you've come once again into this broken world, into my broken life, into the broken life of my son, my daughter, whoever else. You know, we've all got broken people we know. Thank you, Lord, for coming one more time. But, you know, we've got to spend a little time getting in touch with and not gloss it all over and say, oh, well. Because there's real suffering that's caused by sin in this world. It's terrible, terrible suffering. But we have a Savior, and his name is Jesus. So somebody, let's just listen now then to the, this text from the fourth Sunday of Advent. We'll finish with that, and we'll be done. Oh.
Okay. Please round of applause for Martino. All right. Does anyone have any questions? Uh, okay. Um, Jane, Jamie is writing in saying, uh, Father, you used the term biblical 40 years and uh, equated that to 70. Uh, could you explain that, the term biblical 40 years? Yeah. Well, I think there, there are some questions on how um, to date Jesus' birth. Uh, you have to go all the way back to that. So was he born in zero? There's no such thing as the year zero. I hope you know that. Um, so if you do all the math, probably Jesus was born about 2 to 3 B.C. in modern terms, okay? So um, instead of, um, 
him uh, maybe dying at exactly, um, you know, uh, 30, you know, 33, he would have been just slightly older than that. But the point is that when he said it, it was, it was, uh, he was crucified closer to the, you know, the year 30, and then 40 years from there is AD 70, all right? So, but again, all these are, are questionable things. But 40 years uh, in the Bible, of course, has always been a, a number <clears throat> uh, that's very decisive, right? <clears throat> so 40 days, 40 nights for the rain, 40 years in the desert, uh, 40 years from Jesus' prediction, whether within exact 40 years to the day, or whether it was, you know, 40-ish years, right? For example, most of you hopefully know by now, Lent isn't really 40 days. It's 40-ish days. <laughs> These 40-ish days of Lent, oh Lord. Okay. It's, it's, in the, it's right close to 40. Even like, for example, we have other words like not just quadragesima, which is 40 days. We have septuagesima, sexagesima, quinquagesima. None of those are literal 50, 40s, and, and you, know, you know, those types of days um, in, in the Latin calendar. They're 40, they're 50-ish, 60-ish. Uh, they're in that, in that range, okay? So when I say 40, I'm not, I, I, you, could, you could try to argue that Christ was born in such and so year, he actually died in such and so year, and then we all know AD 70 wrote, but I, I would prefer to keep it more 40-ish. 40-ish biblical years. It's a sign of judgment. Uh, there's another question coming in from Martin Lopez, who is asking, is it fair to say that the real punishment for our sins are the consequences permitted by God rather than a direct punishment by God? <clears throat> well, it could be both. As we know from the book of Hebrews, God does, it says God does punish us. Now, let's before you go, oh my gosh, um, remember, what's the purpose of punishment? It's to correct, but, but really think about it this way. The, the purpose of a punishment, as a parent, you would punish your children in a small way so that they did not learn in a harder way. Now, my father, for example, would say to me, son, you can't talk back to your mother like that. Uh, you're going to have to go in your room. For, but dad, three days, I mean, three hours in my room is terrible. It's terrible. He says, it's not as terrible as being in prison if you talk back to the police officer. Or, you, know, you, know, you know, in other words, the point is that you try to get someone to experience in a smaller way the consequences of their behavior so they don't experience in a much worse way. Now, you might say, well, what's worse than having the whole city destroyed and da, 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 going to hell? Going to hell is much worse. You know, ultimately, so God is a good father, as the book of Hebrews says, behold, and we accept punishment from our earthly fathers for what child who has a father hasn't been punished. But if you're not punished, you're no child at all. You're a bastard. Now, literally and figuratively, right? Uh, the idea is that, you know, it's punishment is a sign that we're God's children and that he loves us and he doesn't want something worse to befall us. So, yes, God does punish. But sometimes he simply allows the consequences of our own actions to, to be our punishment. So it, it's either way. But, you know, usually God's punishments are actually better than the full consequences of our decisions. So I'd rather trust God's punishments than, than, uh, than just, you know. Yeah, so I would just answer the question, I guess, fundamentally. It's a little bit of both. God does both. But you better rue the day when God finally says, I'm not going to punish you anymore. You're on your own. You better, you better hate that day for the rest of your life. If God, there's, a, there's, a, there's an expression in the Bible, God handed them over to their iniquity. <gasps> nothing worse. Nothing worse. That is a civilization killer. That's a civilization killer. Don't ever look for the day when God just stops punishing us. Because the Bible calls that he handed them over to their iniquity. 
the full fury and the full force of what we, we do the most awful thing. I just spent 40 days on a grand jury. And I mean, it was a murder one grand jury and aggravated rape and assault with a deadly weapon grand jury. And I can't give you any of the details, but people do horrible things to each other. Sometimes for the most awful reasons. Some of you watch those forensic files, you know what I'm talking about. It's terrible, terrible stuff. We had worked 43 cases and it was the most awful stuff you can imagine. Never, never. And most of these, most of these were committed by men who'd never had a father in their life. They weren't punished as a youngster. It's awful if we're not punished. Thank you, Monsignor. I think uh, that's it for tonight. Could you please? Yeah. Could you please? Uh, uh, could we conclude the night receiving your blessing? Yeah. Cardinal George had a saying some years ago. Most of you might. Um, you know about these these things go in cycles. You know, cultures come and go, and civilizations rise and fall. All in the age of the church, we've seen this in the age of the Bible. But um, Cardinal George had the saying, and um, you've heard it before. He says, I'll probably die in bed. My successor will probably die in jail. His successor will probably die a martyr. But his successor will pick up the pieces of whatever is left of Western culture because that's what the church has always done. But, of course, the idea is that it doesn't get to that point. That's why we're, God's depending on all of us, right, to correct ourselves but also to correct people we know and love and to form a, a remnant, a remnant for a culture. So we're calling upon our Savior to not just save us, but to empower us to reach out and bring that salvation to other people. So let us pray. Lord, it's a, it's a heavy task. It seems like it takes hundreds and hundreds of years to build something up and only 20 minutes to tear it down. And that doesn't seem fair, Lord, but help us. This is where we live. This is where we've been called to live in these times. And you're looking for heroes. And you're looking for men and women who will... Um, do some very hard work. And Lord, even if we don't think we can go out on the point of the spear, help us at least to support those who do and to back them up and to give them encouragement and resources, like the Institute of Catholic Culture, which is willing to be out on the point of the spear and uh, plow new fields for the kingdom of God and bring people back to the harbor of safety in the church. And so um, please, Lord, um, only in the safety of your teachings, your word, uh, so please help us. Even if we are not always able to be out on the point ourselves, we'll support organizations like the Institute and other people we know who are out there doing the hard work. Help us to support them. And now may Almighty God bless you all, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.